You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Let's pray together again. Oh, cosmic Christ, we thank you, Lord God, for who you are. Vast and immense, immeasurable, beyond compare. God, we thank you. Creator, sustainer, redeemer. Lord, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we confess before your throne that we just get a glimpse of you. As we live our days out on this earth, we just get a glimpse of you. And Lord, as we open up your word, we we behold in Jesus Christ the glory of your name, the glory of your Son. And we understand that in him all blessing is thrown to us. And uh, Father, we just live in just a little bit of that blessing. Father, would you teach us? Would you open the eyes of our hearts? Would you enlighten us? Would you give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know you better? better? May the eyes of our hearts be opened, Lord, so that we might know the hope to which we've been called. Lord, that's our prayer as we begin this uh, study on the book of Ephesians, and we thank you that as we press into you, God, you will do this. You will, by your Holy Spirit, unveil the glory, the majesty of Christ, and in so doing, uh, deepen our security in him. And Lord, I pray that others that listen would be drawn to give their lives to Jesus Christ, Lord, to surrender, to bow the knee, to say, I need this Savior, I need this forgiveness, I need this eternal life, and you're the only one that gives it. So bless, Lord, in the word now, and bless our time together in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm excited this morning because we're uh, finally getting into the actual exposition of the book of Ephesians, and many of you have already got your copy of the binder, the notes that we're studying. This is just chapters 1 to 3, between now and Easter we'll be going through, and and uh, great notes, by the way, in the introduction, uh, various materials that are given, and um, this is $5. If you want to order a copy, a hard copy, that's uh, up to you to do. And then uh, if you want to just follow with us online, as Doug was showing us our webpage this morning and announcements, you can do that as well, and you can just follow every Sunday the text that is preached in the morning, the notes for that, for studying, commentaries, and and uh, parallel study Bibles and so on. These are all online there. We've got permission from all the companies to do that. And so you can do that for your own personal benefit. You can do it for your family. If you're in a life group, you can do it in preparation for the life group meeting that week and study the, the Word of God a little more deeply. You'll notice in the bulletin that you received, there's a blue piece of paper. It's an insert that will be given each week as well. And you can study, uh, kind of take notes of the message that uh, I'll be preaching or whoever's preaching and um, this morning you'll have it, uh, some extra tidbits in there as to our study of the book of Ephesians. <clears throat> well, Paul is going to talk about the church a ton in Ephesians. Paul is going to talk about the church in vast ways. He's going to talk about the inception of the church in eternity past, how we were chosen in him before the creation of the world. Like, 
Go back to before the earth was formed. That's where he's going back to. And then he's going to go take us forward into eternity future. And he's going to talk about what's going, on, going to happen in eternity future. He's going to talk about, about the consummation of the bride of Christ. The, this, this gathered people from every tribe, language, culture, people group. And how we get a picture of them in Revelation chapter 5, 7 and so on. Where we see the gathered church around the throne worshiping the Son of God. And so Paul's going to be there in eternity past, there in eternity future, but mostly in the book of Ephesians, Paul is in the here and now. Paul is going to be concerned about teaching the saints in Ephesus about how to live out their identity, their faith in Jesus Christ in the present age that they live in. And so today as well, we're going to be looking at Ephesians, and in the coming months, we're going to be looking at how do we be the church on this age, in this age and in this life. We live in this already but not yet kind of stage of life. And Paul is earnest that we learn to be the worshiping community and the people of God in, in this world that's dark. Believe it or not, this ancient letter in Ephesians has incredible relevance for us today. And we can just imagine there was this, the, the recipients were this little small group of believers and they were a marginalized group of believers, a little Christian sect in a pagan city, in a pluralistic culture that was tolerant of almost anything, but it was not tolerant of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a singular way, nor of those who proclaimed it. <clears throat> and, and they suffered for it. And, uh, you know, I think that kind of sounds familiar to me in living in Canada in the 21st century. Uh, we live in a pagan city. We live in a pluralistic culture. We live in an age when everything is tolerated almost, but not the gospel singular of Jesus Christ, the one way that salvation is gained, eternal life and forgiveness. And you will be ostracized if you stand up and live out and, and speak up on that language. We live in this world, and this gospel or this message of Ephesians is incredibly relevant for us. Many people today believe that the church is in crisis, and I would say that in many ways you could say, yes, it is in crisis. If you look at various parts of the world, you would, you would give it a crisis uh, factor by degrees or percentage factors. And I'm most concerned about Canada, of course, but, but in Canada recently there have been some studies done, and they've, especially I want to refer to a study done for the Huffington Post on 1,004 Canadian millennials. Now, millennials are those that were born between 1980 and 2000. Put up your hand if you were born between 1980 and 2000. Hands high? Okay, we got a good number of millennials here this morning. Let me just pick on you for a moment because the millennial group in Canada is perhaps is the lowest group that is practicing Christian faith. In their study, they found out that 51% of the respondents in the millennial group said that they don't, uh, they, they never attend a religious institution. 50 watts, majority of Canadians in that age bracket want nothing to do, they have nothing to do with religious, whether Christian or any other religion, nothing to do with it. We live in a pluralistic, secularistic kind of culture. Uh, just 12% of that age group, on average, said they attend weekly. And uh, the highest group, if you want to pat yourselves on the back, is Central Canada, the Prairie Provinces, with 23% of that age group that uh, attend regularly. 
Another study that I read about uh, described Quebec as the, the lowest, and in fact, Quebec, if you know, if you know uh, France and Quebec, they're, they're actually tracking exactly the same. 1% of France and 1% of Quebec identify with evangelical Christianity. 1%. Uh, dark place. Is the church in crisis? Well, in some parts, maybe more than others. Another uh, stu- study done two years ago called uh, Hemorrhaging Faith by the sociologist James Penner analyzed why and when, why and when young Christians, Canadians, leave and return, leave and return to the practicing of Christian faith. And he discovered that for every three young people that grew up as a child in the 80s and the 90s attending church, only one now regularly attends, okay? For every child in the 80s and 90s that attended church, only one of those three now is attending church. He quotes a book by uh, Tim Clydesdale called The First Year Out. He says that it examines the self-identity of young adults as they leave high school, and he explains that they have developed what they've called a hidden faith. Hidden faith. It's an issue for all of us. It's an issue for not just generation, millennial generation, but for all of us. This idea of a hidden faith. The author says this, Many of these youth do not say that their faith is not important, but they don't want it tampered with as they figure out how to get a life. It's back there, but it's complicated having it out front in an individualistic, credentialed, and materialistic society, end quote. It's hard having your faith out front, in your face, kind of, of other people in an individualistic, credentialed, and materialistic society. Well, how does that stack up with Jesus saying, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. You know, friends, I want to say to us this morning that if we listen between the lines on the statistics and on the trends that we're seeing in our age not just with the generation called the millennials, but with all generations. It has something to do with, I believe, the word insecurity. Insecurity. And I believe that the insecurity that we see lived out among many professing believers in Jesus Christ has both a vertical axis and a horizontal axis. Okay? And the the vertical axis has to do with my union with Christ, my identity in Jesus Christ. That's why... We are offering a course, Pastor Doug's leading, on who I am in Christ because it's fundamental for us to understand who we are if we're going to be living this out. And, if, and indeed, one of the goals in that course is that, that the person will take a significant other friend and begin to explain and share who I am and what I'm doing and how I'm doing in Christ. And in so doing, if we can do it with one other trusted friend, maybe I can learn how to do it with my friends at school and so on. So that's the vertical axis, this idea of just knowing scripturally, knowing biblically what's going on, who am I in Christ. Then secondly, the horizontal plane is, then who do I belong to? Who who is it that I belong to? You see, the point is this. There's nowhere in this book, friends, that entertains the idea of someone who has union with Christ and does not have communion with the body of Christ. There's nowhere 
It's unheard of. It's not thought of. It's incoherent. You cannot claim to be in fellowship with the head, Jesus Christ, and ignore his body. And yet we have this incredible Canadian tendency to just sort of respect each other so much that we hide what's most important to us. Now what happens? Here's what happens. Is that individuals do not openly share, openly live, openly talk about this, this incredibly important part of my life. I'm a Christian. It's the most important thing about me. But this non-Christian peer group knows nothing about that. And then that Christian turns around and the growing tendency, as we just read about, is that one in three that used to now no longer are part of a worshiping community. And so therefore, that individual Christian is not known, is not identified with, is not in a Christian group where they're being built up in their faith and they're growing in the Word. Do you see what's happening? I'm not known there, and I'm not known there. What does it lead to? It leads to incredible insecurity. It leads to identity crisis. Who am I really? Where do I belong? How do I live authentically in this world? Dr. Carl Henry was right when he said that the greatest sin of the evangelical church is unapplied orthodoxy. We don't know how we belong to Christ, and we don't know how we belong to each other. And so we have a consumeristic age. Notice that quote I put in your blue piece of paper from Greg Laurie. If we train people to be consumers instead of communers, we'll end up with customers instead of disciples. That's what many of the churches of this age are on the track to do, is just, you get up in the morning, you look in the paper, and you look online, you say, hey, well, well let's go to that church, it's got a good worship team, or, oh, let's go down there, I hear that so-and-so is visiting, he's preaching, or something. What does that have to do with being part of the visible, tangible, communal expression of the body of Christ, where you are in organic relationship, friendship? And so when one weeps, you weep. And when one rejoices, you rejoice. And so Paul is very earnest in expressing and addressing the dual axis problem. And in chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians, he addresses the vertical axis problem of just explaining who is the church. Who are you as a Christian, as one member of the body of Christ? And in the second three chapters, four to six, he addresses how then do you live that out in your relationships with one another? That's what Paul is going to be addressing in chapters one to three and in chapters four to six. This is an incredibly relevant book to study in our, in our age, in our culture, in our state uh, we, we have this opportunity now to open up this relevant book of God's Word. And it's really not so much of what you will do with it. It's really more about what will it do with you. That's the thing I want you to pray about. What will this do with you? If you intentionally, in the next five months, study this Scripture with us and look at it and seriously try to 
obey the word of God, God can transform you and God can transform us. You see, last week Dan Hamill was preaching and he referred at the beginning of his message to a sad postscript to the book of Ephesians when he quoted Revelation chapter 2 verse 4. The risen Christ in 95 AD is speaking through the Apostle John and he says to the church at Ephesus, I have this against you, you have forsaken your first love. Now friends, that was about 30 years, 25 to 30 years after Paul had spent three years day in and day out preaching and teaching and building up the saints. And after he left, he sent Timothy and Timothy was a pastor to the church at Ephesus for years as well. So that in, in 25 or 30 years, is that not a generation? 25 or 30 years, is that about a generation? About a generation after Paul left, here is a church that is commended for their hard work and their perseverance and so on, but finally said, but I have this against you, you've forgotten your first love. Call yourselves generation X, Y, Z, millennial, whatever you want. The point is, is that it only takes one generation, as we're seeing in Canada, and the church grows cold. Why? Not because we don't have religious habits. We have churches all over the place with services. If you can't find a church in southern Manitoba, you're, there's something wrong, right? The point is that so many individuals are losing their first love. Jesus was not the center anymore. It's kind of like a marriage, like a marriage that, that is operating on duty, is operating on on sheer duty and not the love and the passion. So many times that when that happens to a marriage, they just figure that, I guess it's over. You know? And so many times as we're seeing when a believer stops sensing joy and passion in God, they figure, oh, it's over. And they stop practicing their faith. Instead of understanding that that the, the, the feelings can wax and wane. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.24, he says to the Corinthians, we say, he says, we work with you for your joy. You see, it sometimes takes work to go back and get that first love united again. It takes work in a marriage to rekindle the first love. It takes work on the church and individual Christians to rekindle. Of course you're not in love with Jesus. You haven't opened the Bible in two months. Of course you're not in love with Jesus. He hardly is in your day. And so similarly, we're, we're called upon. And I'll tell you, friends, if we, if we take this scripture seriously, we can be radically changed and transformed, especially as we talk it up together and apply it. And so let's begin this st- study in the letter of Ephesians and uh, let's see what God wants to do with it. In us. As I prepare to read it, I want you to imagine for a moment. Imagine that you're part of a little house church in Ephesus. This is called a circular letter, which means that a messenger, according to chapter 6, verse 21, his name was Tychicus, was sent by Paul with the manuscript of Ephesians. And then I suppose that along the way they started recopying it. But the first time it arrived at your house church in Ephesus, you would have, you would have been calling all the families together, women, men, children. They'd all gathered in the biggest home that was available. And then they'd heard read out loud the letter from Paul, the apostle. That's why in, in our study notes on the blue page, number one, 
the, the thing that I want you to do in life groups, in families, whatever, I want you to take 22 minutes this week and read the book of Ephesians in one sitting. Read it out loud in one sitting. I, I, I was doing it back in the fall every day, and then I got away from it, and I tried it again this morning. It takes about 20, 22 minutes just to read it out loud, one sitting. We get that whole sense of the wholeness of the book, of what, of what the teaching and then the application looks like between chapters 1 to 3 and chapters 4 to 6. <clears throat> I'm going to do something a little different this morning. I'm going to take this Bible, and uh, you'll figure out what I'm doing in a while. I got a Bible here, and I got a blue piece of paper, and on the blue piece of paper it says, Believer in Christ, okay? I'm going to put this piece of paper in the Bible and close it. And I'm going to pass it here to Jonathan, and he's going to take out the blue piece of paper, put it somewhere else in the Bible, and pass it on to Dave. And then Dave's going to pass it on and so on. And everybody's going to do that uh, all throughout the sermon. The blue piece of paper is going to be taken out, put back in, into a different place, and then the Bible's going to be passed around, okay? So why don't you carry on doing that? Would you take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1? Ephesians chapter 1. In the first service, I think somebody didn't hear me, so a couple of people just kept on putting it in the pews. I ruined the illustration. <laughs> Let's stand together as we listen to God's Word. Ephesians chapter 1, <clears throat> and let's begin with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Amen. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Believe it or not, verses 3 to 14, we just read verse 3, Verses 3 to 14 in the Greek text of the New Testament is one sentence. It's a long, run-on sentence. And, in, of course, in our NIV Bible here, we have eight sentences. And so Paul is about to go off on a huge, huge uh, journey of incredible theological language talking about the, the chosen in him before the foundation of the world and what God was up to in establishing his church and we're going to be looking at, at that in the next couple of weeks. It, it contains 202 words and uh, is chock full of incredible depth. And I believe that's why after he's done that, in verse 15, he launches into one of two prayers that he has in order that we might have wisdom, a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. Because you see, the truths that he is going to unpack in verses 3 to 14 are not so much taught as they are caught, spiritually discerned and understood. And so I believe that's why Paul prays the way he does, that capacity praying in verses 3 or 15 and following. So this morning we're going to be just basically looking at an introduction. And I'd like to suggest this morning, first of all, that of the over thousand letters that have been found in the, in, of the era of the New Testament, Paul's 13 letters, his 13 epistles, resemble the exact form of the letters that have been found in the New Testament era uh, in, Greek, in the Greek text. So, so in other words, there was a, a standardized way of writing a letter 
in Paul's day, just as there is today, in when you write a letter to some government agency or some business, there's a certain standard form. Well, similarly, there was a standard form in Paul's day. And it included this. It always began with the name of the writer. Paul begins all of his letters. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Secondly, he say, states the recipient of the letter to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Thirdly, there would be a greeting and that is, in this case, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And fourthly, there would be a prayer or a thanksgiving, some kind of blessing. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Fifthly, there would be the body, the main part of the letter, which in this case is chapter 1, verse 3, to chapter 6, verse 20, which we'll be looking at in the coming months. And then finally, there would be a final greeting or farewell, chapter 6, 21, Grace to all who love the Lord Jesus Christ, etc. There's this final greeting, and that's the way. Every letter, almost every letter found in the same era of Paul writing has this kind of format. So let's take a look at the first four of these, uh, of these stages, and then we'll be looking at the body of Ephesians in the coming weeks. First of all, the name of the writer. Paul says, I'm Paul. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He uses his new name. He uses his new given name because Paul, of course, we know, was Saul of Tarsus. He was named after Saul the king, in the, the first king of Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, we know that because uh, Saul of Tarsus was from the tribe of Benjamin, and so was Saul the king was of, the, of the Benjamites. And uh, it's interesting because Saul the king was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. And actually one of his downfalls was that he was very arrogant and proud as well. And uh, you could say that Saul of Tarsus was like that as well. But then somehow in Acts chapter 13, he starts to be called Paul, not Saul. And you know what the interesting thing is that Paul literally means small. <laughs> Paul means little. And some people think that it was because of his stature that he was called Paul. We're not sure. But the thing that's amazing to me is that here is this man that was big in his own eyes, and God had to make him small in order to be useful. And Paul would even talk, and he would boast in his weakness and in his smallness so that the glory of God would be seen in him. You see, Paul learned early in his apostleship he learned early that you can be too big for God to use, but you can never be too small. Never be too small for God to use. So Paul is the one, he calls himself an apostle. That word simply means sent one. He is one, as he calls himself later in other letters, he calls himself untimely born apostle. In other words, he didn't know Christ when Christ was yet living on earth. He had this special visitation of Christ on the road to Damascus. And so because he had seen the risen Christ, he could call himself an apostle. Secondly, Paul goes on to mention the recipients and he calls them saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. The word saints, it comes from the word holy, holy ones, set apart ones, descriptive word. And Paul is earnest in uh, his letters to remind the believers of their new identity. There they were living in the shadow of the great temple Artemis, this pagan temple. There they were living in the shadow of all these different pagan temples of a godless city. There they were and Paul calls them saints. Set apart ones, holy ones in Christ Jesus. 
There they were being tempted in every week to give in to some of the temptations that were titillating around them. And Paul writes to them and he says, guess what? You're not sinners. You're saints in Christ Jesus. I've been doing a study this week on whether Paul ever calls someone who after he meets Jesus ever calls him a sinner. I've looked at every text I can find. There's only one time that I can find that Paul ever calls someone a sinner after they've come to Christ, and it's himself. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, it says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. He didn't say I was the worst. He says of whom I am the worst, present tense. So Paul, Paul acknowledged that we are sinners. Paul acknowledged that we still sin. But Paul primarily uses the word saints to talk about Christians, people who have come to Christ. In every letter but Galatians, every letter he wrote, he identifies his recipients as either at the beginning or during the letter, he identifies them as saints in Christ Jesus. Why is that? Because Paul, you see, saw every believer as a new person in Christ, a new nature, and we have the capacity to sin still. But Paul's teaching in, in the emphasis on his letters is that there's this new nature. There's this newness of life in you because Jesus lives, abides in you. And because of that new abiding in Christ, you can live not according to the old habits, but according to the new things that God brings about in your life. Sinclair Ferguson has written that Satan has said that Satan constantly engages in identity theft of the believer, trying to convince you that you're really fundamentally a sinner. No, we're not. We're not. We're fundamentally saints who sometimes sin. And it's important, as we're going to see, why that has to be that way. John Owen, the pastor of the Puritans in the, in the early, in the 1700s, 1600s, said that there were two pastoral responsibilities, persuading those who are under the dominion of sin to come out of it, and persuading those who are no longer under the reign of sin that they can live free from it. Really, that's our calling, isn't it, for all of us? And so this new identity has to be understood, and so Paul is earnest. In chapters 1 to 3, he starts to talk about it. And uh, it's interesting that in chapters 1 to 3, as, as you look at the verbiage of chapters 1 to 3, the verbs, there's only one verb in all of chapters 1 to 3 that's an imperative, where it's a command. And it's in chapter 2, verse 11, when the Gentiles are said, remember who you were. That's the only command in all of chapters 1 to 3. Then, in, in, all other verbs are indicative mood. Indicative mood simply is descriptive. All it's saying is, God is this, and you believers are this, and the church is that, and it's describing. No commands. You don't have to do anything in chapters 1 to 3 except remember. And then as soon as he gets into chapter 4, dozens of imperatives Dozens of commands. Why is that? Sinclair Ferguson preaching on Romans 6 this past a week ago, we were at a conference, and he said the same thing about Romans. We don't see an imperative in the book of Romans until chapter 6, verse 12. Why does Paul do that in his letters? Paul does that in his letters because, you see, being is more important fundamentally and essentially than the doing. You see, the, the doing of our lives, the commands that we obey, have to come out of being in Christ, knowing who we are. You see, imperatives are a dangerous thing, actually. 
Imperatives are dangerous because you're being commanded to do something and the the fear is that you're going to start trying to do that. You're going to start thinking that you can live the Christian life without God. And so over and over again, every imperative that comes out comes out only after Paul has laid the foundation. You have to have Jesus in your life. You have to be one with Christ. It's only in His strength that you can live the Christian life. It's a powerful statement Paul makes in these ways of writing his letters. Now look at, look at the two locations of the recipients. There's a physical location and there's a spiritual location. Paul says that the Ephesians are both in Ephesus, but they're also in Christ Jesus. I think this is really important. Temporarily, the believer is in this body, on this earth, at such and such an address. But spiritually, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. This is a, a theme that Paul is, is, is unpacking in all of his letters, always coming out, this idea of union with Christ. My union with my Savior is not some abstract idea, not just a theological thought. It's a reality. It's, it's, it's literal. Sometimes we use the word literal and we think that something literal can't be anything but physical. No, literal, spiritual union with Christ is literal. I am physically before you preaching right now, And I live physically at 135 Quincy Bay, but my spiritual address is in Jesus Christ. And where is he? He's seated at the right hand of the heavens. By the way, where is that Bible that I was passing around? Okay, good. And where is the blue piece of paper? Oh boy, I hope we got some theological problems if the blue piece of paper is not in the Bible. Oh good, thank you. See, what's important in this situation is not where the blue piece of paper is. Because I know the blue piece of paper is in the Bible. What's important is, where's the Bible? What's important in your life is not all the storms that you face and all the opposition to your faith and all the struggles you have in living the the life that God loves. What's important is that you're in Christ. And wherever Christ is, you're going to be. And whatever God lets happen to Christ, He lets happen to us. So Paul says in Colossians 3, he says, For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And Christ, who is your life, when He appears, you also will appear with Him in glory. So where Paul's going with this is the idea that whatever happens to Christ happens to us. And his favorite phrase of Paul's, in Christ, in all of his letters, he uses it 164 times, in Christ, in him. In Ephesians, he uses it 32 times. In the verses 3 to 14, we're going to study in the next couple of weeks, he has a dozen times. Because union with Christ is, is the way Paul put faith together. It's, it's not just a checklist, not just a belief. It's, it's me and Jesus, Jesus in me, and me in Jesus. Intimacy. And so therefore, as verse 3 says, if I am blessed, He's blessed us all in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Whatever has happened to Christ has happened to me. 
In one sense, I could say to you this day, and it's not heresy, that God has nothing more to give you than, than what he's already given you. Because every, every, every blessing that God ever gives, the Father ever gives, is in his Son. And he's already given you his Son. And so you are, are, present tense, you are blessed in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So, so as you struggle it out here on earth and you don't have enough love in your life to love your enemies, well, guess what? It's right there at the right hand of the Father. Go and ask for it. And you don't have enough forgiveness to forgive someone. And you don't have enough uh, perseverance to stay at that job or, or to, to love in that marriage or whatever the thing is you're being challenged with in obedience to God. It's all there. It's in Christ. It's in union with Him. Go to Him. He's your source. Just like is, it, we preached on Joshua last fall. We went through Joshua. And remember the time when Joshua allotted all the land of Israel to all the 12 tribes. There was no more Canaan to allot. Every part of Canaan had been mapped out, distributed to each of the tribes. It was theirs by promise to Abraham. Their name was on it, you know, Zebulun, Issachar, etc. What did they have to do? They still had to go in and take the land, didn't they? They still had to go in and drive out some enemies. They still had to go in and put up the tent and camp and say, this is ours. Just as you and I. We're given all this rich heritage and blessing and inheritance in Christ. What do we have to do? We have to draw so deeply into Christ that we can depend on Him to be everything for us and in us and as us that we cannot be for ourselves. Is this getting a little too mystical for you? <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm, I'm standing on tiptoe every day trying to reach this. Trying to understand this union with Jesus that I have. But this is all the way, this is the way Paul talks. This is what he believed. He's convinced of this. And so, we haven't even got to the, the greeting yet. Grace and peace, he says. Paul uses it in every one of his letters, 13 times. You'd think he'd mix it up a bit. Let's put the faith and hope in there for a change. He doesn't do that. He says, grace and peace to you. And, and some people said that grace is kind of like the first three chapters and peace is kind of like the second three in Ephesians. That we need the grace of God to understand and to be in this right relationship, union with Christ. And we need the peace of God in Christ to live it out with our brothers and sisters on earth. That's one way of thinking of it. Where's that piece of paper? Ah, it's in the Bible. Where are you? You're in Christ Jesus. And whatever you're going through matters less. I know that's hard to say for some of you. Whatever you're going through matters less. Where you are in life matters less than where that, that you're in Christ. Let's acknowledge to ourselves and to God that we all live at disappointingly lower levels than we know what is available to us. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn thee.
heard a story about a famous British actor that was asked to read the 23rd Psalm in an assembly. And so with his wonderful accent and with his charisma, he got up and he read the 23rd Psalm, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be want, and so on. And afterwards, a thunderous applause for this. Sometime later, he was at a church service, and the occasion that it afforded and the pastor's uh, preaching led him to preach through and talk on, read Psalm 23. And by the time he was done reading Psalm 23, there was not a dry eye in the place, just from reading Psalm 23. And the British actor on the way out of the church, he stopped at the pastor and said to him these words. He said, sir, I know the psalm, but you know the shepherd. Let's pray in Ephesians 1.17. And let's keep on asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might know him better. Amen? God bless you.